Welcome to Inspiring People and Places, where we interview national leaders in the architectural, engineering, construction, and development industry in an effort to educate, innovate, and inspire industry professionals to disrupt the status quo, improve their project teams, and steward public and private investments more effectively. I'm your host, BJ Kramer, President and CEO of MCFA. And today, joining us from Stantec, I'm excited to welcome Luis V. He's going to help me with his last name to the show. Luis, great to have you. Thanks. And yeah, I'll give my last name a shot. It's Vildostegui. And uh, apologies for that. It's my parents' fault. Uh, all good. I just didn't want to butcher it out of respect <laughs> for your parents. <laughs> you uh, wouldn't be the first. <laughs> Don't worry. Uh, Luis, excited to uh, have you on the show. Really excited to dig into uh, alternate delivery models and public-private partnerships uh, that you've been doing, in, especially in the higher ed space. I think that is an innovative and disruptive uh, way that we can be we can be improving our industry. But we start every show getting to know you, getting to know your background, what inspired you to come into the AEC space. So tell us, tell us where it all started. Ooh, uh, well, thanks first for the invitation and uh, uh, looking forward to it for a while, although really intimidating to listen to some of the recent uh, guests you've had. Um, I'm the son of Cuban immigrants. Uh, my parents came to this country just after the Cuban Revolution and uh, right before I was born. And like many immigrants, the experience is similar, you know, difficult times. We were fractured families all knitting together and, and in some sort of extended community trying to make sense of this new place everybody arrived in. And, and I was the first of that extended group to, to go to college. And, and I, knew, I knew going into it that this was a special privilege uh, because so many others in, in my extended group didn't have that chance. And I knew that it was both a, an exciting opportunity and a responsibility. And, and I really had a a deep respect for education, you know, higher education in particular, as, as a path to opportunity and, and really a sort of validation of what my parents and, and its prior generation had, had tried to achieve for us, you know, the opportunity um, access. And so, you know, the, the opportunity to go to Tulane and to go to School of Architecture was fantastic, but then it, it, it notched, ratchets up a level when you go to architecture school because it's such a high energy place. You have all these really creative people and the lights never go out. And, and it's every pinup, every jury, uh, which is the foundational you know, sort of experience is this robust debate, a battle of ideas. And it's hard not to get excited about this. And, and it's in that, that I really found the, the sort of core, the seed for my career. I, I've always been just mesmerized by that debate, that kind of energy, and always about that, the notion of the best idea winning. And despite the claims for you know, design architects to be egoists and, and vain, I, I think it's this, that, you know, that battle to, to find the right idea wherever it comes from, um, and then just getting that team jumping around that idea, um, and then following up with curiosity that always inspired my career. And, and I think part of it's been that ability to uh, to recognize when something hits some when someone hits something special, uh, and and to be challenged by the different perspectives that make that possible. That's always been where my interest has resided. Um, you mentioned curiosity. Were you a curious kid from an early age? Yeah, it got me in trouble um, <laughs> all the time. Um, always getting my my wrist slapped, smacked. I went to Catholic school, so the ruler came across for all the 
overtly overly clever things and questions I would ask, but um, but yeah, no, I always was, and I and I noticed early on. I get well, not early on, but at some point, I realized that I was seeing things differently. You know, spatial thinkers. You know, we may not be the best at other things, but we somehow figure out aspects of life in the world that in in a different way. Um, and I think that started to become evident as I was in high school. Yeah, I was aware of it. Yeah, well, I I always talk about curiosity leads to creativity and vice versa. And, and, you know, we talked about innovation and the only way that you can innovate is if you're looking at it from different perspectives and being curious about how could it be better. So I have the systems engineering background and systems engineering is all about how do we make the system more effective, more efficient? How could we be doing it? And it's what's driven my curiosity and passion for, you know, speeding up the public project delivery process. Um, and there's an interesting, there's another sort of corollary uh, skill or trait that, yeah, you've got to be curious, but you also have to sort of be able to flip the switch. You know, you, when you're doing something, it has to be all passion, blood, sweat, you know, to pour yourself into it. But while you're doing it and at points when you stop, you have to be able to disconnect, flip the switch, pull back and look at it objectively and cold and say, is it good? Does it yeah. make sense? And and not look at it as if it were mine, but look at it as its own entity. It's it's its own thing, and you have to take it on its own terms. Because um, if you can't do that, then you can't question it. You can't really critique it. Uh, it's an interesting. That's, that's an interesting take. Uh, I, and I couldn't agree more. You know, we we do get focused and heads down, and we're trying to get things done. But if we can't, you know, pick our head up and and look around and say, oh. Right. You know, are are we doing it well? Are, is it good? Um, I yeah. think we're we're doing our clients and ourselves a disservice. Oh yeah, early in my career, I taught a design studio, um, and you could always tell right at the beginning. Uh, you can see the quality of the work on its own, but you knew you, the jury might go sideways when the students started presenting my idea. I wanted to always the first person reference. And every now and then you get a student that talks about the idea or the party or the scheme. And you can see that you are going to be able to have an engaging conversation with this individual because she or he was able to distance themselves and bring that objectivity, that critique to the work they were doing. And generally, that was the first tell in, in, every, in every jury. Tell, tell me more about design juries. I, I didn't go to design school, but my COO uh, went to University of Cincinnati. Uh, right. So it's a design school. He's a planner, but and and I think he credits that experience with thick skin and the ability to challenge ideas. So tell us oh. more about tell us more about design. Yeah, I, I think it's the basic model for teaching design, and, and I think it happens everywhere in some form or another. But the idea is that students are working on projects and yes, they might get desk credits from their design professor or instructor uh, during a studio session. But at some point you pin your work up on the wall and there's a large group of people, professors and students and other members of the design community are gonna come in, they're gonna sit there, you're gonna present your, your, your effort, uh, whether it's a in progress or a final, and they're gonna critique it in front of everybody. And yeah, you've got to be able to develop the thick skin, but more importantly, I think you have to be able to distance yourself from what you've bled into the, the personal part of it and look at it as, as its own living thing and, and, and be able to, to generate 
ideas and reactions to how it's behaving, how what it's suggesting and where it wants to go. Um, so that you can really take in, take on board what people are saying and you can see it again, like you suggested from a different perspective. Uh, the other thing I, I think that probably really hits home is pride of ownership as well. So the, the, the flip side of, of you know, having perspective and disconnecting yourself is also being connected to it and, and having that pride of ownership so that you, you see something through and you're, 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 you, you do bleed and sweat on it. Yeah, no doubt. There's, I, I, I refer to it as flipping the switch because you have to do both. Yeah. You have to be able to own it and be passionate about it. You have to be competitive. Everybody else is filling up the wall. You want to have as much work or more. It, you know, there's a, there's a competition happening, but you have to be able to turn it off and switch into the objective mode as well. So you can actually improve the work. Um, no, it's both. It, it's, a, it's a difficult toggle. A lot of students don't make it, not because they lack the talent, but they lack the ability to step back for a moment and, and not take it personally. Because when, yeah. when you take the critique personally, it's devastating. Yeah. I, I couldn't agree. Uh, I 100% agree. Um, so you've been in the industry a while. I think you've been all of the world. Talk to us a little bit about your your career path. Um, well, and have you been at Stantec that entire time? Oh, no, no. I've been at Stantec for the last five years. Um, I, I, I've been through uh, a few other firms, but uh, I, I think my career took a couple of turns. I mean, there was a an event. Uh, my wife had a serious accident and that uh, uh, we had young children at the time and she had a long road to recovery. And so that took a, uh, we took a path uh, as a result. But the next big significant moment, I think for me was uh, in 2008, uh, I spent, I, I took a, uh, another detour, an interesting one. I went over to Dubai and I was in the Middle East for a few years where I I founded an education studio as part of the uh, large international design firm I was working for. Uh, the firm was doing all the crazy stuff you know about in Dubai, the, the most leaning buildings, the buildings out on the palm, all that fun stuff, but they weren't doing any education work. And I went out and I discovered there was a, a really fantastic opportunity for higher education and for K-12 projects and, uh, and, and founded the, the studio. And it was while I was there that, that perspective um, uh, was was challenged, not just about the Middle East and and the way I, I saw that part of the world or thought I understood it, but how it reflected back on what we do. And um, one of the craziest things we the scale of the projects was was phenomenal. We were designing brand new universities from scratch where where nothing existed, and. I spent time at other universities in the area to see what context and precedent we were working with. And, and I was surprised. I went to the University of Sharjah uh, for, for a jury. Uh, I was a juror. And they had this extraordinary complex of massive buildings that were influenced by American models. But they were not set as you know, Jefferson's UVA on some lawn in, in, in a moderate climate, they're in that harsh desert climate. And so these broad, wide open spaces that can't grow grass, so they put marble um, across them because they can, um, it just made no sense. Um, and I began to wonder about that question, you know, why are we doing this? 
And I've always thought, I've always been very impatient about um, what I always refer to as the worst answer in the world. When you ask a question about how or why, and somebody tells you, well, that's the way we've always done it, or that's the way somebody else did. I, I, that one always makes me cringe. And being there in the Middle East and seeing that they were really looking to American models and, and UVA, Jefferson's UVA is a marvelous project. Um, it, it has informed almost every campus in the US and, and obviously from my experience in, in the Middle East, even in, in that part of the world. But you have to wonder if it's really applicable anymore, even here, let alone there. Um, his academical village, uh, an agrarian, view of the world, an agrarian view of, of higher education and of society, a benefit from pulling away and withdrawal. Um, and, and really, if you're looking at it from an educational perspective, the idea that you would set up individual pavilions for individual faculty or masters, that's what most college campuses have done, the English building, the history building, the science building. But that's not where education is going. Um, interdisciplinary uh, courses are, are the ones that generate the most interest. It's, it's where we inspire and create sparks that create you know, innovation and, and new research uh, when programs mix. And, and so really the model, not only foreign to Dubai, it's, it's really foreign for where we are today as a society. And, and that got me thinking. I, I started writing a book researching and writing a book about campus planning because I was stunned to find that there was really very little critical or theoretical knowledge available about campus planning. Hmm. I'll never finish the book. I think it's, <laughs> it's an effort that for me, it's about my sanity and, but also a place where I just work through ideas. Um, the, the chapter structure and everything else about the book changes every time I touch it. I, I know I'll never finish it, but it was a good exercise and remains so because I get to explore ideas about what campus design should be or could be or might be. I ask questions of myself in there and you know, I get to things like the, the P3 and, and, and as well. But I, I think that that was a really sort of a, a light bulb sort of experience for me being in, in another part of the world, living there and looking back at the US, looking back at our design customs, our precedents and seeing them with a, a new a, a new perspective. So let's talk about that because I, higher ed is something I'm certainly attracted to. Uh, the you, you live outside of Princeton. We talked about how beautiful that area is, that campus is. I went to the United States Military Academy. Again, gorgeous campus. Stunning. Yeah. Um, it feels like over the last 20, 30 years, um, we focused on improving the residencies, we improving the athletic facilities, because these are the things that recruit and, and bring people and attract people to your school. I think higher education is, is kind of going through a reinvention. I think that there's a constant debate of the ROI on, uh, on an individual's tuition and how much they're having to spend versus the, the job market they're walking into. Talk to me about how what's going on in higher ed um, from from both a business structure and how that's impacting design and, and construction. Well, uh, it's a really rich uh, that's that's a that's a deep topic. There's so many <laughs> bands. No, I, I think education, higher education in particular, has been changing for a while, and for the longest time, uh, many institutions seem to 
you know, have taken an ostrich approach and put their head in the sand about it, which is surprising because we look at higher ed for the place where innovation and creation, new thinking is supposed to come. But like anybody else, um, I think they get they get caught up in in pattern and, and things take on a momentum and and we set we settle into traditions. But um, there are demographic challenges across the U.S. The age, uh, the the number of age eligible college headed students is diminishing. Um, there are economic challenges. I mean, how many of us can afford 60, 70,000 a year for our child to, to attend college? Uh, an economy like ours now certainly brings that to light. Uh, you mentioned the resident, yeah, uh, residence halls. I mean, how many food courts and uh, climbing walls can we build to try to attract students? And yeah, does it really make sense that the highest paid employee in every state is a football coach? And, and I say that, absolutely love college football and, and I was a division one uh, athlete not a football player but um, what myself, sport did you play uh, I ran track in uh, in college you know. okay yeah. what was your event <laughs> Sorry? quick quick sidetrack what was your event well uh, I went to uh, Tulane at a time when we were just deep with 1500 meter runners um and uh, they were better and more dedicated than I. I was a little quicker, so I dropped down to the 400 and 800. But okay. I saw the backside of most of the best runners of my time. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that aside, um, no, I think that all those issues, as an architect, I have limited control over. But I, I tend to focus on the ones that are, are physical and that maybe I can help. And those are just as important. And I think the the overall is that there seems to be a confusion about the institution and the campus, and they're not the same. The institution is about the mission and, and about the educational experience and the stewardship of culture and knowledge, and that's really not about the buildings. Um, it's not physical, and I think that, yes, every campus is going to have an emotional core campus is what I'll call it. Um, that alumni are tied to, that's important for branding, that's about the culture of the institution, yes. But thinking about all of the campus in the same way locks the institution in and it becomes inflexible. And if you think about in initiatives and imperatives of our time, um, global warming, energy, you can't just keep expanding the notion of campus in a sort of Jeffersonian model. Um, you need to consolidate, you need to contract. We need not dedicated segregated buildings for each academic discipline, but we need hybrid buildings and we need new building types. Um, ones that allow much greater flexibility. I mean, students are starting to unbundle education. So what if they're not attending for a semester? What if they only want to attend like in a conference model? and be remote and be on campus only in bursts of time. We need buildings that are more like stage sets or sound sets or hmm. conference facilities that can quickly be assembled and disassembled. In a way, we need a more demountable campus, something with a much more fluid footprint, something that might zipper quite literally with the surrounding community so you can get partnerships for students to get practical experience, for you to get all sorts of benefit from being adjacent to a community or a city. And, and I think that that's where education is heading, but the traditional view of campus sort of holds us back from getting there. Um, but I think we'll see more of it in the, in the, way, in the years to come. Um, Has the pandemic 
pushed on those organizations? And, and are there any kind of bleeding edge universities, whether they're your clients or just by, by reputation that are out there leaning into that? Well, I, th- I think the, I, I, I'm sitting in the Northeast. I work largely out of Philadelphia. Pennsylvania is a state that has a, an inordinate number of colleges. I think uh, probably the most of any state. Um, we've got about 400 uh, throughout the state. Most of them are small, private liberal arts. They have felt this last two-year stretch more harshly than and more acutely than just about anybody. And I, I believe we'll see mergers, uh, unfortunately, or uh, some other sort of consolidation or closing of a number of schools. And I think that's the first thing we'll see out of necessity, because this crept up on people, you know, much too quickly. But after that, I do think that we will begin to see schools develop more flexibly. And we're working now for uh, Westchester University on a hybrid building. And when I say hybrid, this is a building that has the main dining spaces on campus or the new ones, but it also has immersive learning for the nursing program. It has a biomedical research suite. It has traditional labs. It has large auditoriums. It has banquet spaces. It has faculty offices. It has general. It really has a little bit of everything. And I think you'll see more of that as universities and colleges try to make their spending, their capital spend dollars spread a little further, cover more of the faculty's needs and move toward more flexible and cross-disciplinary efforts that share faculty or leverage strengths in different areas uh, because I think they'll need to. Um, And I think we're seeing more schools start to talk about it at least, uh, which is encouraging. That is encouraging. Um, Maybe, maybe a continuation of this topic, maybe it's a, a switch. Uh, How does the P3 model uh, that you've seen, it sounds like you've seen work and you you've used, uh, how does that play into this? Well, yeah, that's an interesting one. And as a designer, to be honest, um, P3 or any other way that owners are procuring their buildings, um, not the thing that's driving me. I, I'm still more interested in delivering the, the best building for you that I can, but, but inevitably to, to be able to counsel uh, and provide guidance to my clients, I have started to, to, to get deeper into this and driven mostly by the number of inquiries we're getting. Um, I think that when we talk about P3, our industry tends to focus on the very high profile, very large infrastructure projects. And often media focuses on some of the failures or the concerns. And in almost every case, we're talking about P3 where that public-private partnership is focused on the capital and on on the money that's making it possible to happen. Um, But that's that's only one way of looking at it, a very restricted way. I, I prefer to think of it as more broadly the alternate delivery models uh, of, of opportunity. And P3 is a type, uh, so is design build, and they occur on a spectrum. But when you get to P3, the idea is really not solely about that capital. It might not be the money. And what I find most interesting about some of the inquiries we're getting now is that, uh, for instance, we're working with a Northeast um, University, a a state university, and we're doing a few very small uh, million and a half 
uh, renovations of laboratory spaces. This is a very well-funded university. They have no need for outside equity or investors to help them pay for their projects. They're interested in P3 because it allows them the opportunity to, to control variables in procurement that they might not otherwise have control over. The things that give them agita, you know, they, they're worried about schedule. They've gotta be in on a certain date to get their federal funding for this particular research grant. They're worried about the control technologically. Is it sophisticated enough? They worry about lowest common denominator bid models, you know, when they have to go out to public bid and they can't control who's, who's in the bidding pool. And, and so they look to a P3, not for the, the capital, which is what we always focus on, but the opportunity to tailor their procurement to a specific vulnerability. And that's what I think makes P3 interesting. I mean, we're working with uh, Prince George's County to deliver six schools. Um, they, have to, they have to meet a rapid uh, delivery timeframe because they have such a, uh, an explosive growth in population. Uh, but they also have a school district that has a very high um, value of deferred maintenance embedded in the rest of the, of the, uh, of the district. And so they're looking for P3 partners because they need to secure the date for delivery without question. They need to secure a price and they need a 30 year maintenance contract with somebody who can operate these buildings because of the scale of, of, of the demands being placed on them. And so it's surety that they're looking for. It's not, it's not the capital, it's, 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 it's the guarantee of operational uh, occupancy and, and performance. And so I think that's what's made P3s and design builds and that whole spectrum more attractive to higher ed. I mean, we, we saw it initially with residential buildings, uh, probably more so in the Western uh, half of the nation than, than on the East Coast where land values tend to give universities pause about involving uh, third parties. But, but we're seeing it now in different ways. We're seeing more K-12, we're seeing small scale projects. And, and that's what makes it interesting to us that we see owners are taking control and really managing their risks, their exposures and their particular interests. That's what I think makes it interesting. Well, I, everything that's going off in my head right now is that certainty. Sorry about that. <laughs> no, no, that's, I, the, I'm with you and I think we do get caught up in the quote capital stack where, you know, bringing the money from the private sector and, and executing it for a public benefit. But I, to your point, I think it's a lot of owners are realizing that their organization or their staff or, or their quote bureaucracy is too complicated to deliver. And if they can outsource the delivery of this, it can be expedited by an expert. Yeah, um, no, it can. And, and there are lots of things to hold in balance and to at least have a debate about. There are a number of states and a number of jurisdictions where multiple prime bidding or some form of that is, is required. And we shouldn't just ignore those. Uh, there are some real good reasons why these systems were put in place. Uh, they were intended to broaden access to these projects for smaller contractors so you don't lock them out um, to provide some equitable uh, distribution of public work. Again, a very important initiative. But I think it's fair for owners to be able to consider a broader spectrum of, of their needs 
and to consider the options um, and consider structuring projects and deals uh, in ways that secure their institutional need, their best interest. In some cases, it's still for the public good. In the case of a school district, making sure you have the seats available for the kids so that they're not taking classes in makeshift spaces that are unsafe, unhealthy, or just not good for education. Um, that That's a public interest as well. And so I think it's part of the conversation we ought to be having about how our public institutions and even private ones are, are procuring buildings. Yeah. Uh, it's just, I, I could keep going on about that. Um, the, the higher ed, I mean, all of the issues around higher ed are very intriguing to me. Inspiring People and Places is brought to you by MCFA. MCFA is a CVE verified, service disabled, veteran owned small business. At MCFA, our why is to inspire people and places through project leadership. We provide planning, strategy, program management, and construction management support services to a wide variety of public and private sector clients. But we're gonna we're gonna switch to some rapid fire questions if oh you're boy. ready for them. Okay, I don't know if I'm ready, but <laughs> go ahead. Favorite quote. Favorite quote. Uh Oh, I love um, I love the Yogi Berra quote. He's always a great source for wisdom. Uh, when you come to the fork in the road, take it. Uh, I absolutely love that one because there's so much sort of implied. Um, I'm, I'm not sure if he was um, meant it, but um, there's a confidence uh, in it. There's an empowerment in it. Um, there's the sense that whichever path you take, it's going to be okay. Mm. And I think all of those are, are are good things to know. I mean, I. Where I am in my life, I, I, I realize that most of the mistakes I made, and I've made plenty, hey, I survived. It was okay. It taught me something. Um, it led to the next opportunity. Um, and, and so I really love that quote because I, I, I think it frees, frees one up from a lot of burdens. Yeah, I like um, it. Just make the, make I've, the, never, I've never looked at that quote that way. I saw I, it as make the call and, and you'll be okay. Just go yeah, with it. That's... How about must read or most gifted book? Ooh. Ooh. Um, I, I don't know if I'd say must read because a part of the whole perspective thing, I think what makes it interesting is if you and I are reading different books, yeah. um, occasionally, you know, we should have a few common things. I think that bind, but, um, oh, uh, one of my favorites, uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, uh, Love in the Time of Cholera. Um, I just love this author, whether you read them in Spanish or in English. In Spanish, it's obviously a little better native language, but um, he's a great storyteller, but he's wickedly clever and he turns a phrase so sharply and it's so acute, um, his wit that even in translation, even in English, and even if you don't know all the sort of Hispanic and Latin cultural references, He's still biting and sharp and funny. And it's a really fun, it's a great story. It's tender, it's tragic, it's, it's um, humorous. You read it with a smile, despite the, the embedded little tragedies. And so I, I love his work. Um, he's great. I also That's love true. anything anything from David Sedaris. He makes me laugh. All right. Um, dead or alive, if you could hang out with three people for a day, who would they be? What would you do? Ooh. Uh, you know, the answer to this question probably changes. And I, I think as I've gotten older, I've gotten uh, a little bit more comfortable with myself. I don't feel like I need to impress people. So I, I don't reach for the, uh, the obscure intellectual and try to pretend I, I know something I don't. I, I think, uh, I think uh, my father, um, 
I would love to have time to ask him the questions I never got to ask. Um, you know, I always thought we'd have more time. So if I could uh, watch a ball game, as like any Cuban guy, you know, love baseball, uh, walk on the beach, his favorite, his favorite thing, and, um, and just have some of those questions uh, knocked back and forth, that that'd be great. Um, I think if I had to pick, you know, sort of well-known folks, um, Again, I'm less interested by the uh, the geniuses because I don't relate. Uh, I, I'm not going to be one of these guys. I'm not going to make history in that way. And I, I've given up on that sort of effort. I, I'm more impressed by the folks who did something amazing and by all rights shouldn't have ever made the history books. You know, Rosa Parks, for instance, you know, mm. somebody who uh, would be hard pressed to, to make a, no, a local newsletter yet changes the world and, and shows us not just strength, but grace um, in strength. And I, I think that's, you know, that's where I'm more interested because I, you know, I consider myself, you know, normal and I, I, I don't aspire to, you know, changing the world entirely, but making a little bit of a difference in her case, a significant difference, um, but doing so with grace, um, you know, the everyday courage of a, of a Jackie Robinson, for instance, you know, yeah, he's a great athlete, but beyond that, what he must've put up with every day. You know? yeah. So, yeah. I think I'd love to have dinner, uh, be invited to dinner at Rosa Parks house. I think that would be cool. Um, but I, I don't know. Um, uh, very cool. Uh, and, and great, great perspective. What do you want on your tombstone? How do you want to be remembered? Probably, probably uh, one of those folks who uh, won't get buried and have a tombstone. I'll probably uh, be cremated and have my kids distribute me in some place that's meaningful to them or they thought was meaningful to, to me. I, I, I think I've given up a little bit on the legacy concern. I mean, there's a part of legacy, which I think informs every architect. We probably come into this profession with a degree of vanity and ego and <laughs> building buildings is the idea of leaving something behind. So I, I think That's somehow right. I've gotten past that. Uh, I think legacy now for me comes up more when I sit back and I'm watching my grandkids do stuff and I'm just sitting there smiling. And if they're good people and they do good things, I think that's, that's the better legacy. I, I agree. Any closing comments, inspiration to the industry? You've, you've been around for a while. Um, what would you be saying to, to the young architects and engineers out there? <laughs> My wife tells them, choose another profession. She jokes about that all the time. <laughs> she wouldn't let any of our daughters go anywhere near it. But um, I mean, I think for, for owners, uh, general, the general population, I, I think don't hire an architect what they know. I think if, if an architect is bringing you answers, it means they're not really listening. You know, I, I always think it's funny that every RFP always asks to show five times where you've done this before. Um, no, I, I would be more inclined to hire the architect who's asking me the better questions uh, because this shows they're listening and that they care about my project, my needs, what might improve my business or my standing and, and not just showing me what they did for somebody else. I mean, there's a, a need to prove you can do some element of the work, but beyond that, I'd rather they, they actually look for somebody who they can have a robust conversation with. And yeah, battle a little, but somebody who's gonna listen and someone's gonna take that to heart and think about it. Um, 
and give them the best shot they can. Uh, I think that's the better way to hire an architect. Luis, it's been awesome getting to know you. Where can people connect with you? Are you on uh, LinkedIn? I'm on LinkedIn. I guess uh, uh, I'm also on Stantec's uh, website someplace. Uh, either one of those will probably work. Great. We'll make sure we link it in the show they notes. They can spell my last name, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll make sure we get it right in the show notes. Luis, it was so great talking to you. Thank you so much for your time and, uh, and your wisdom that you shared with us today. I don't know about wisdom, but it was fun for me too. So thank you, Jay. <laughs> Hey, everybody, if you enjoy this show, do us a favor and subscribe to Inspiring People and Places on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast hosting platform. We'd also greatly appreciate if you left us a review and shared this with other entrepreneurial public servants. Be sure to visit our website at www.mcfaglobal.com. Sign up for our newsletter to stay in touch with us. Until next time, have a great week and a great weekend.